The sermon that we're looking at today is, uh, is about testing, as you see on the screen. Now, we don't like tests. I don't like tests. Even when we're decades removed from school, as, as I am, many decades removed from school, we still have these nightmares of going into an examination, a test, and, and not being prepared, not knowing what's on the test. Tests aren't just for students. Life for every person has its tests. The practice of Lent helps us prepare for life's tests. Now, it's almost cruel to say that we're in the season of Lent because in Old English, Lent means the season of spring. And spring's not quite here yet. We, we hope that it comes this week. And it's supposed to come this week. But Manitoba weather has a way of fooling the weatherman, so we'll see. Let's review some of what we've been saying about Lent last Sunday and in and, uh, and other weeks. It's a 40-day fast between Ash Wednesday and Easter. Now, those of you who are quick with math, which I'm not, are thinking, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's more than 40 days between Ash Wednesday and, and Easter, and it is indeed. The reason for that is that we don't count Sundays. Lent is a period of fasting. Sunday is always a day of feasting on the church calendar. It's a day of celebrating what? The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of Christ from the grave. We celebrate that every Sunday as Christians gather to worship. So it's not a day of fasting, it's a day of feasting. So you take the Sundays off and then there's 40 days of of fasting in Lent. Now, let's pray, pay attention to the word fast for just a moment. Fasting is the willing abstinence or reduction from some or all food, drink, or both for a period of time. That's why when we talk in Lent about giving things up, fasting is giving up food, all food or some food or part of food, not eating Fasting, however, in the Christian tradition is not limited to just food. Some people during Lent take a fast from social media or things like YouTube videos. We had one student friend at the University of Manitoba who one year for Lent gave up, I'm not making this up, gave up hitting the snooze button on her alarm clock, which she was in a habit of doing three or four times every morning for All of Lent, there was no hitting the snooze button. I wish you could do it on Sundays, of course, because that's the feast day. So Lent is 40 days of fasting, giving something up. Different countries and different traditions have different names for what we call Lent, the season of spring. And many of those names are much more connected with the meaning of Lent than the English word is, especially for those of us in the north part of the world. Uh, The French emphasize the number of days in Lent, so Lent is called... Oh, I can't speak French. (laughs) You read it. I I butcher it. My my daughter speaks French. My wife speaks French. I'm hopeless. In Italy, it's quaresima. Both of those words come from the Latin word meaning 40th or 40. So in, in many parts of Europe, the word for Lent encaptures the idea of of 40. 40 days of fasting. 
In other European traditions, the name for this season reflects the emphasis on on fasting, not 40. Uh, The Germans, uh, no, the Czechs observe postnidoba. I hope I said that right. If you're Czechoslovakian, don't hit me. Uh, The Germans, I don't know anybody that speaks German properly, is Fastenzeit? Fastenzeit? Okay, we're getting warmer. In Poland, it's known as the Great Fast. Veliki Post. It's also called that in Russian. I'm not even going to begin to try to get close to the Russian. Forget that. So we, we need to shift our focus in Lent a little bit from saying that we're giving something up towards saying we're fasting. For 40 days in Lent, we're fasting. Now in churches where the lectionary is read on Sundays, which is true for Elam, the gospel reading for the first Sunday of Lent every year takes us into the wilderness with Jesus, where for 40 days he ate nothing. 40 days of a complete fast. That's the, that's the reading every year, the first Sunday of Lent. My efforts to fast in a small way for Lent, maybe not drinking coffee or staying off Facebook, feels a bit lame in comparison, doesn't it? But even then, as I've confessed to you before in in other sermons, I still struggle keeping up with the program. I'll break my fast without even realizing I'm doing it. And then I'll look at myself and say, why did I do that? This Lenten season, we're, we're looking into the gospel readings to see a picture of Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. Why? Because we are followers of Jesus. And to be a Christian is to learn to follow him, to imitate him, to be like him. Now, there was nothing easy about Jesus' journey. How did he stay on course? How did he complete that journey? He accomplished it by trusting God. In his words and in his example, Jesus calls us as his followers to trust in God. The only way that we can properly follow Jesus and carry our own cross is by trusting God. Otherwise, the journey is too dangerous. It's too difficult. It's too daunting. So our theme for Lent this year, as you've already seen in different places, is all or nothing. Trusting God in the journey. The journey of Lent, the journey of life. Trusting God all the time. We want this Lenten season to be learning to trust God more by looking at Jesus through the gospel stories. Let's review how the public ministry begins in the gospels. First, there's the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River by John the Baptist with the voice of God validating the fact that Jesus is God's son and the Messiah. This is the first announcement of who Jesus truly is. God's Son, Messiah. Immediately after this, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit where he is tempted by the devil. As I said earlier, every year, the first Sunday of Lent, we read together this story, Jesus in the wilderness where he's tempted. This morning, we're going to take a fresh look at this story and try to learn more about trusting God in our times of testing. 
Now, to properly do this, we need to reset the picture a little bit. We live in Canada, and for most of us, the word wilderness conjures up images of verdant forests teeming with all sorts of life, babbling brooks, pristine lakes. We go to the wilderness to relax, to unwind, to breathe clean air, and to enjoy the beauty, especially during the summer. Who wouldn't want to spend 40 days in the wilderness? Sounds awesome. That wasn't the kind of wilderness Jesus went to. It's not the wilderness where he spent 40 days. This is a picture of the Judean wilderness. No streams, no lakes, almost no vegetation, and not much life to see unless you get really down close and personal with the dirt. It's hot, dry, barren. There's very little that sustains life in the Judean wilderness on the same scale as what we know. Forty days in that wilderness was no holiday. Jesus wasn't on a holiday. He was entering a time of intense testing and temptation. The word that's used in in the Gospels means to test, to prove, to prove that something's real, genuine, or to tempt can mean all of those things. You ever see the old westerns where a guy's in a a bar and he puts down a, a gold piece on the bar to buy his whiskey and the bartender takes it and does what? You old timers, what does he do? Bites it. Why? He wants to see if it's real gold or if it's cheap metal. That's the same word. He's testing it to see if it's true, if it's genuine. It was a time of testing for Jesus, in essence, to show him. Remember, he's fully human. It was a time of testing for Jesus to show him that he was truly up for the task of being the Messiah. The other thing that we need to reset is our understanding of the severity of these testing of this testing. Many of us, I, I imagine, think of Jesus exploring the wilderness for 40 days, walking around, looking at things, taking naps, uh, finding shade when he could. And then after 40 days of not eating anything, when he's a bit weary and exceedingly hungry, the devil attacks him with three temptations. That's often how we look at it. That's not what the text says at all. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. All that time, Jesus ate nothing and became very hungry. For 40 days, Jesus experienced the ongoing assault of the enemy, the adversary. Can we imagine how exhausting that must have been? For 40 days, he took the adversary's best shot, and he never gave in. Jesus passed the test. Jesus walked down this road before us, taking a test with a degree of difficulty that we can hardly imagine, and he passed the test. Hebrews 4.15 says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testing we do, yet he did not sin. What happened was for 40 days, Jesus was tempted, and then when he was weary, hungry, and weak, the gospel story shows us three temptations, the only ones recorded for us. 
Maybe they represent what Jesus was tempted with for the entire 40 days. Or maybe the adversary tempting with all kinds of different things and saved these last three for the very end when Jesus was thoroughly weak. Hoping that in his weakness he might give in. Well, how do you see this temptation happening? Do you see a visible Satan confronting Jesus in the wilderness? Uh, That image makes for good art, I'll admit. But is that what really happened? We had this discussion at dinner table last week, the three of us, and uh, the turning point in our conversation was when somebody brought up this verse from Hebrews 4.15. We're told that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. How are we tempted? We don't come face to face with the devil. We don't come face to face with demons. They're not little creatures sitting on our shoulder, whispering things in our ears. They may come through other people, because some things, sometimes temptations do. You remember in, in the Gospels that Peter was an agent of temptation, and Jesus turned to him and said, what? Get behind me, Satan, because he was an agent, a voice of temptation. They may be provoked by external stimuli, by things we see or hear. But temptations mostly come in the form of thoughts in our heads, multiple voices in our minds that tempt us to stray from what is right. And they can be exceedingly convincing. I'm not saying that neither the devil nor his demons have a role in our being tempted. I'm saying that they work undercover, that they are sneaky clever, and the tempting voices that we hear in our heads sound like our own voice. I can't tell you why or explain how demons or the devil can insinuate temptations into our head. I don't know that anyone can. But I know this. Our adversary is clever and real. And the tempting voice that we hear is subtle and on the surface makes a lot of sense. As we look at the three temptations of the wilderness, we can see a a pattern in three parts. In each temptation, we hear what appears on the surface, at least, to be a fact or factual. Then we're introduced to the suggestion of something that is advantageous to our advantage or to our gain, and finally we're shown a choice of action, something we can do. Now, what makes temptation particularly powerful is the second part, the advantage or the gain. Generally, it's not the sin that we find attractive. Most of us are smart and mature enough not to be attracted by sin. But the gain is another matter. Take a lie, for instance. Normally, we don't tell lies. Ordinarily, we don't even like people who tell lies. But sometimes, we'll lie for the benefit that we can gain. You know, I'd stay out of trouble if I just told a little lie. I could get some credit for something I didn't do if I just twisted the truth a little bit. I might make some money off this with just a little slight alteration of the truth. 
You see, it's at that point of advantage where the temptation begins to make a little bit of sense to us. I could get something out of this. Now, I'd like us this morning to try to put ourselves into Jesus' shoes for a few moments. I think we're on very safe ground in doing this because, remember, he was tempted as we are tempted. We are tempted as he was tempted. So let's experience these three tests in the wilderness. Test number one, we're sitting on stony ground, let's say, exhausted, hungry, weak. We haven't eaten anything for more than a month. I can hardly imagine what that would be like. Suddenly a thought. It's almost like a voice comes into our mind. Why should I be suffering this way? Why should I be hungry? I'm the son of God. I, I was there when all of this was created. I, I, I can just by an act of my will take that stone right there, that rock, and I could turn it into a loaf of bread. It could be any kind of bread I want. I could have rye bread. I could have pumpernickel. I could have whole wheat. I could have gluten-free bread. I could have anything I want. I just have to want it, and it will happen. Any kind of bread. My body's hungry. I need food. I'm weak. I'm getting weaker by the day, and there's no need for this hunger. What good does it do anybody? Enough. I think I'll get something to eat. Does that compare with what we see in Luke? Is that what was going on in Luke? Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. Temptation starts with the fact. Jesus was the Son of God. So certainly as the Son of God, he does have the power to turn a rock into a loaf of bread. And after 40 days, his body desperately needs nourishment. Pretty good facts, wouldn't you say? And the advantage to be gained is obvious. The advantage to be gained is strength and escape from the painful pangs of hunger. All he must do is act to turn a stone to bread. Test number two. Our thoughts move now to some high mountain where we can see the whole world. Now, in this one, more clearly, the devil is driving the bus. Says the devil took him in its thoughts to a high mountain. And the voice inside says, everything you see is supposed to be yours. You've been appointed by God to be king over all of this. But how's God going to get you there? You're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be crucified on a cross. That doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? You know what? There's an easier way, and it's much less painful. I, right now, am in charge of everything you see, and I can give it to you, and I'll gladly give it to you. All you have to do is acknowledge my sovereignty. Bow before me. Worship me. The, the, the word literally just means kneel before me. And it's all yours. No pain. No waiting. No difficulty. And it's not even that big a deal. Kneel. Nobody's going to know. You're not going to get caught. How does Luke tell it? Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you worship me. Well, temptation begins with fact. Is this factual? Partly, but not quite. The facts are now stretched and distorted. Yes, the devil does have some sovereignty over the nations and the rulers and kingdoms of the earth, but it is not, it, it is, it is not his by right. It is his by our human choice. It is his because of the choice that our parents made in the Garden of Eden. It was not quite his, but he does have some authority. While the fact is weak, I think the temptation is strong. Become king with no suffering, with no pain. And the action is simple. Just now kneel down for just a moment and acknowledge me and everything will be good. Test number three. We now find ourselves on the pinnacle of the temple. There's a place where the temple temple wall is built on a cliff overlooking the Kidron Valley. From the peak of that wall to the peak of the pinnacle of that wall down to the valley below is hundreds and hundreds of feet. And Jesus is standing there. It's a dizzying height. And the voice asks a question. You're God's Messiah, right? God's anointed one, true? But who's going to believe you? You're a carpenter from Nazareth. Nobody here likes Nazareth. Not that fond of carpenters. They're just going to laugh at you. But wait a minute. Maybe there's a way. Maybe there's a way we can do this. You know, didn't, didn't the psalmist say, didn't God say through the psalmist that the Messiah, if he, if he tripped and fell, the angels would come and, and lift him up lest, lest he dash his foot on a rock? Didn't God promise that? Well, you do this, you, you, you jump off this cliff, the angels will, res- will rescue you, and everybody's going to know that you're the Messiah. It's a done deal. How does Luke tell it? Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For Scripture says, He will order His angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted and tested by facts, distorted by being half-truths or truths taken out of context, and by the opportunity to gain advantage by simply taking some easy actions. It's pretty much how we're tempted. Different temptations, but the same kind of pattern, the same format. Now, each one of us should stop at this point in the gospel story and give thanks that Jesus passed the test. Because had he not passed the test, this real battle with Satan with enormous consequences, had he failed the test, lost the battle, there'd be no reason for us to be in this room. None. Because Christianity would be worthless. But Jesus passed the test. How did he pass the test? The answer is pretty simple. He quoted scripture. Three times he responds to the temptation by saying, the scripture says, and he quotes scripture. He set us an example to follow of trusting that what the scriptures say 
are wholly true. And for using those scriptures in the time of testing, when we're being tempted. He showed us how to trust what God has said, not the apparent good sense of the voices in our mind, the tempter's voice. Trusting the words of scripture, Jesus was trusting God. Wait, though, did you notice that Satan quoted scripture too? He wasn't trusting God. No, he's just clever and deceitful and was trying to entrap. He he did the same thing back in Eden when he's talking to Eve before Adam's even in the picture. What does he say? Did God really say? He's enticing her to doubt God, not trust God. In the time of testing that comes daily for us, frequently even during our day, the struggle always comes down to the question, can I trust God? Will I trust God? Will I trust God and do it the hard way? Or will I listen to the voice and take a shortcut? Who will I trust? Will I trust God or will I listen to that subtle voice that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden? The only way we're going to win is by trusting God. Jesus led the way. He gave us his example. He, he refused every temptation by trusting God. He quoted God's word to shatter the partial facts and destructive suggestions of the enemy. Now, Jesus went into this time of testing prepared for the struggle. And I'd like to remind you this morning that Lent helps us prepare for the test. Lent helps us prepare for the test. I have a sweet tooth. The first 20 years I lived in Winnipeg, I lived a couple of blocks from a Robin's donut shop, and I worked a couple of blocks from a Robin's donut shop, and I would sometimes be in both of those shops on the same day. Well, maybe not sometimes, maybe more than sometimes. I don't know how many thousands of donuts I ate in my life. I have a sweet tooth. So one of the things I often give up during Lent is sweet things. Now, my wife is quite cooperative. She bakes cookies. That's a good thing, because it's a test. It's a test. It's an opportunity for me to be tested. Now, she doesn't do it on Monday, fortunately, but yesterday she baked some of my favorite cookies. And she ate some, and Anna ate some. And I ate some this morning because it's feast day. (laughs) And you can't beat cookies for breakfast. I don't mind telling you. See, these little things give me a chance to practice saying no. That's what Lent is good for. It helps me practice saying no. No to the tempter. No to the voice. No to the seductive idea of taking an advantage from something by deviating from righteousness. The fasting of Lent helps us be prepared for greater temptations because we are in a battle with the adversary. We may not want to be, but we have no choice, and we must be prepared. A young Texan reporter by the name of Joe Galloway was in 
Vietnam as a reporter. You see his name on the bottom of this book cover, Joe Galloway. He wrote a book with Hal Moore, who was the commander of uh, a group of a cavalry unit that was one of the first involved in one of the first major battles between an American army in Vietnam and a North Vietnamese army in South Vietnam. Uh, he he managed to insert himself into the battlefield. He wasn't supposed to be there. He didn't have permission to be there. But he found a fellow Texan that flew a helicopter and said, yeah, you can sneak into my helicopter. I won't see you do it. And you can get out and I won't see you do it. And he got into the battlefield that way. And there he met uh, an officer by the name of Major Charlie Beckwith, who became a very famous man in the U.S. military history, who didn't mind letting this reporter hang around. Then Joe found this cavalry unit that was going into battle, and he wanted to go with them. So he, he, he got caught by Major Beckwith in the process, and Beckwith only said, Where's your rifle? And Joe responded, Well, you know, technically speaking, I'm a non-combatant. There's a reporter. Not going to fight. And Beckwith said, There ain't no such thing in these mountains, son. And he told the sergeant, get him a rifle. And uh, Galloway went off with an M16 rifle on his shoulder. Now, this is made into a movie that stars Mel Gibson. And, and the dialogue's in there, but it's in a completely kind of different setting. So read the book. Not the, I've, I've got the book on hold at the library, so wait till I've read it, then you can read it. When it comes to spiritual warfare, this is my point. There are no non-combatants. You can't say, well, I'm a pacifist, I'm not going to fight. No, I'm sorry. There are no non-combatants in spiritual warfare. We don't have a choice. The only choice we have is will we be prepared or not? Now, Jesus could quote Scripture to defeat the voice of temptation, and he did, because he knew Scripture. I'm going to suggest to you that if we don't know Scripture... We're like soldiers going into battle without a rifle. We need to know the Bible. There's no sh shortcut to our preparation. We need to study the Bible. If you could see this Bible, you'd see that it's heavily underlined and marked. Uh, I just stole this picture off the Internet, so I don't know whose hands they are, whose Bible they are, but you can see that it's well studied. There's no shortcut to preparation. We need to know the Scripture so that we can trust God in times of temptation, of testing. So you see, Lent is more about preparation than it is about fasting for me. Part of my giving up sweets for Lent is that I know it's going to be a daily test. And being tested reminds me that I need to be prepared to trust God more. So more important than what I fast in Lent is what I add in Lent. More time in Scripture and more time reading with a purpose. So this Lent, as I'm reading my Bible, I'm, I'm taking the theme that was aptly named by Justina and Rachel, uh, inviting me to all or nothing, trusting God. And I'm reading the Bible looking for things that God says to me that I can trust. And then I'm writing them down. In the old days, I would have written down those things in a book, but I'm more advanced and progressive. So I just write them on my computer screen, keep them in a, in a file, in a note. So that's what I'm doing. I want to be prepared. I want to trust God more. 
I think you want those things too, don't you? Don't you want to be prepared? Don't you want to know how to trust God more? Let Lent help you. I encourage you to, to fast something that will help you focus more on God and find something that will help you learn to trust Him more. Now, there, there's one other thing you might do in learning to trust God more. In addition to reading Scripture, read some biographies of great people of God who learned to trust God. Find out how they learned to trust God. I'm going to close with words from a hymn by a, a, a wonderful woman, Frances Havergal. And, and the, one of the lines in this hymn, We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for the temptation of Your Son Christ in the wilderness that is for us an example and an encouragement as well as a stern warning for how temptation works. Help us during this Lenten season to learn to trust you more, that we might face the testing that comes our way. For we ask it in his name.